Hi, this is Kenny Duff, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's Sunday, August 13th, and this is your Sunday sermon. Before I go any farther, I want to share with you about a change to our sermon series. As you know, for the past five weeks, I've been preaching a series called Win the Day, based on the best-selling book of the same title. At first, I was really, really excited about this book and the concepts put forth in it. For me personally, I really connected with them. But in recent weeks, I've been uneasy with what I've been preaching. I was trying to connect the concepts in this book to scripture, and while I think I was successful to some degree in my spirit, I was growing increasingly more uneasy. And the more I've looked into scripture, I realized that I'm trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, if that makes any sense. It's never been my intention to compromise the word of God, but I feel like that's what I've done with this sermon series. And so, under heavy conviction from the Holy Spirit, I have discontinued it immediately. And I offer my heartfelt apologies to you, Word of Hope Christian Church, and all of you who watch and or listen to this Sunday broadcast. I still will strive to do better in bringing the Word of God to you in the way the Lord directs me. And I thank you for your grace and for His incredible grace and mercy. To God be all the glory. That said, today we're starting a new sermon series called Lessons from Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is about reestablishing God's people. In the first part of the book, Nehemiah restores Jerusalem in a physical sense. In the second section, Nehemiah and Ezra bring spiritual revival to Jerusalem. Over the next 11 weeks, we're going to unpack all of this and a whole lot more. To begin with, we're going to start with Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and we're going to talk about the process of prayer. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now. So won't you join me? Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, this is your word. That's all we need. So Lord, teach us from it today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Let's start with a short Bible quiz, shall we? I'll give you a hint. All the questions have to do with the Old Testament. Here's the first question. Who was the greatest comedian in the Bible? The answer is Samson. He brought the house down. All right, who was the greatest male financier in the Bible? Well, that would be Noah. He was floating his stock while everyone else was in liquidation. Next question, who was the greatest female financier? That would be Pharaoh's daughter. She went down to the bank of the Nile and drew out a little profit. (laughs) I love that one. How about this? Who's the greatest babysitter mentioned in the Bible? The answer is David. He rocked Goliath to a very deep sleep. And lastly, who's the shortest man in the Bible? The answer is Nehemiah. Absolutely. All right. Now, I've got an assignment for you as we begin today. I'd like you to read a tantalizing trilogy. I want you to begin with the book of Esther, where you'll discover how God first began to move in the midst of Israel's captivity by raising up Esther, a young Jewish maiden, to the throne of Persia. It was her husband who was Artaxerxes in the opening chapters of Nehemiah. Then read the book of Ezra, which in the Hebrew Bible is linked with the book of Nehemiah as the same book. When you're finished with Ezra, then jump into Nehemiah and read it carefully. 
Because of the richness of this book, you will get more out of this series if you do some homework each week. So once again, in a nutshell, read the book of Esther, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. I'm really excited about what God is going to teach us as we travel through this book of Nehemiah. We're going to learn things that are going to help us personally, and we're going to end up understanding a very critical part of Old Testament history. First, let me give you some historical context. In Genesis 12, God called Abram to leave his country and follow him to another land. As Abram obeyed, his descendants multiplied. The Israelites were later enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years until God called them out under the leadership of Moses. Eventually, they were allowed to enter the land God had promised them, Canaan. Hundreds of years passed during which the nation experienced struggles, faithlessness, and wrestling with God. The high point of Israel's history came when David, a godly king, was called to sit on the throne. For 40 years, David expanded the nation in both the breadth of influence and knowledge of God. But these things went downhill from there. After his son King Solomon died, Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom had ten tribes and was referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom had two tribes and was referred to as Judah. Because of their disobedience, the Assyrians conquered Israel and the ten tribes were scattered and became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Even though the southern tribes saw all this happen, they too continued to rebel against God. In 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army captured the Jews, Jerusalem was destroyed, the walls were knocked down, and the temple was burned. The people were deported and they were forced into slavery again. Their history had come full circle. The city was literally in ruins. It must have been a traumatic thing for the Jews to see death and destruction and then be forced to leave their homeland and travel about a thousand miles to a foreign country. Many of God's prophets predicted that this captivity would not destroy the nation, that it would eventually end and people would be allowed to go back home. Daniel understood this truth when he was reading the book of Jeremiah. God did not forsake his people. He allowed the Persians to take over the Babylonians, and he moved King Cyrus to make a decree to let some of the Jews return. And in three stages, over about a hundred years, they were allowed to migrate back to Jerusalem, only to discover the city was still demolished and desolate. Living there was dangerous, difficult, and sorrowful. After the decree of Cyrus, 50,000 Israelites returned to Judah with Zerubbabel and began rebuilding the temple. Unfortunately, they got discouraged and quit. Then God sent them the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them to finish the project. Ezra was also sent to help restore their spiritual passion. Finally, Nehemiah tells his story in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. By now, Persia had replaced Babylon as the region's great power, and the Persians ruled in a very different way. The commitment of the Persians was to resettle captured people in their native lands. Conquered peoples could act with a degree of autonomy as long as they supported the state and paid their taxes. As we start the book of Nehemiah, God is about to instigate another move back to the Promised Land. The book of Nehemiah falls into several divisions. The first six chapters cover the rebuilding of the wall, while chapters 7 through 10 deal with the renewing of Jerusalem's worship. The final chapters address the repopulation and revival of God's people. Now, are you ready to dive in? I can hardly wait. Today, we're going to begin exactly where we should always begin, with an emphasis on prayer. Prayer is one of the overriding themes of this book and the secret to Nehemiah's success. The prayer in chapter 1 is the first of 12 different prayers recorded in this book. 
It begins with prayer in Persia and closes with prayer in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's prayers are filled with adoration in chapters 8 and 9, thanksgiving in chapter 12, confession in chapters 1 and 9, and petition in chapters 1 and 2. There are prayers of anguish, joy, protection, dependence, and commitment. It's a story of compassionate, persistent, personal, and corporate prayer. Prayer gives Nehemiah perspective. It widens his horizons, sharpens his vision, and dwarfs his anxieties. Nehemiah's public life was the outflow of his personal life, which was steeped in and shaped by a lifestyle of prayer. His devotion to God, his dependence on him for everything, and his desire for the glory of God found equal expression. He knew that only ventures that are begun in prayer and bathed in prayer throughout are likely to be blessed. I want to suggest today that Nehemiah went through a process of prayer that has great application and relevance to us today. So open your Bible or Bible app to Nehemiah chapter 1. Here's what we're going to unpack. Nehemiah's process of prayer consisted of five things. Number one, concern about the problem. Number two, conviction about God's character. Number three, confession of sin. Number four, confidence in God's promises. And number five, commitment to get involved. So the first place Nehemiah started was with a concern about the problem. Take a look at verse 11. When you see verse 11, you're going to know that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. His job was to taste the king's wine before the king drank it to make sure it was not poisoned. As cupbearer, Nehemiah had a great job. He had intimate access to royalty, political standing, and a place to live in the palace. It was a cushy job that provided everything he needed. And yet verse 2 says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. The word questioned in that verse, it means to inquire or demand an answer. Nehemiah was greatly concerned about what was happening in Jerusalem. He could have insulated himself if he chose to, but he didn't. He sought them out and wanted to hear the first-hand report. This is an important starting point. It's so easy for us to stay uninvolved and unaware. Some of us don't want to even think about stuff that's going on in our own lives, much less take the time to investigate what's happening in the lives of others. Even though Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, he had heard stories about it, and he knew that his ancestors had been led away in chains when Babylon destroyed it. He was doing what Jeremiah 51 verse 50 instructed the exiles to do. Remember the Lord, though you are in a far-off land, and think about your home in Jerusalem. As he thought on Jerusalem, he listened to the report in verse 3, which said, Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. As he tried to imagine the shame in the city of David, he could barely stand it. The phrase great trouble in that verse meant that the people had broken down and were falling to pieces. Three words summarize the bad news, remnant, ruin, and reproach. Nehemiah was broken over the complacency of the people of Jerusalem. They were living in ruins and they accepted it. They were willing to walk around the devastation instead of being concerned enough to do something about their situation. Friends, nothing is ever going to change in your life, in the life of this church, or for that matter, our nation, until we become concerned about the problem. Some of you have been complacent about the way your life is going. You're living with rubble and it doesn't even bother you anymore. Are you ready to allow God to do some rebuilding? If so, 
you need to become concerned about the problem by listening to the facts, even if you don't want to hear them. Then in verse 4, Nehemiah said, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The meaning behind the word wept is that he bemoaned and lamented, much like Jesus did when he cried out in painful tears when he observed the hard hearts of those in Jerusalem. Nehemiah also fasted. In the Old Testament, fasting was only required once a year. But here we see Nehemiah refraining from food for several days. In fact, we know from comparing the different dates in this book that he wept, fasted, and prayed for four months. These are all signs of humility and show a really deep concern for the problem. My friends, do you need some rebuilding today? Are your defenses broken down such that you're allowing some practices and sins to control your life? Before you can ask God to rebuild, you must first be concerned about the problem. After Nehemiah becomes concerned about the problem, he expresses his conviction about God's character. He said in verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Right away, Nehemiah called God Lord. In other words, he recognized the Lord as his master. And in verse 6, he refers to himself as God's servant in contrast. Continuing in verse 5, Nehemiah refers to his Lord as the God of heaven. He acknowledged that his God was beyond the earthly realm and above all other gods. Next, he refers to him as great and awesome. God deserves to be honored, revered, and feared by all because of who he is. Finally, Nehemiah describes God as the one who keeps his covenant of love. God is truthful, faithful, and can be trusted. Nehemiah's boss, the king, was the greatest and mightiest on earth, but compared to God, Artaxerxes was nothing. Nehemiah was in Susa, but his concerns were in far-off Jerusalem. Both cities, one rich, the other poor, one strong, the other weak, one proud, the other broken, were like tiny specks of dust under the vast canopy of God's heaven. Friends, when we go to God in prayer, things get put into their proper perspective. Because of his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah knew that God was not only able but willing to respond to his prayer, but he also knew that he did not deserve to have God treat him favorably. After becoming concerned about the problem and expressing his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah knew the next phase of his prayer was the confession of sin. Nehemiah is now moved to admit his sin and the sins of his people. He says in verses 6 and 7, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. It's one thing to be concerned and to even have a firm conviction of who God is. It's another thing to actually confess it. Many of us never get this far. We might feel bad about our sins or be concerned about how things are going. Our theology may even be correct. We know things are bad and that God is good, but we hesitate at this next step. Nehemiah boldly asks God to hear his prayer, which literally means to hear intelligently with great attention. I see at least three key ingredients in his confession of sin. The first is intensity. Overwhelmed by concern about sin and in awe of God's character, Nehemiah gave himself to prolonged petition and intercession. 
He prayed day and night, spending every moment of time in God's presence. This is very similar to Psalm 88.1, where we read, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. Next is honesty. Nehemiah made no attempt to excuse the Israelites for their sin and actually owned his part in their culpability. He surveyed the grim record of Israel's past and present failure, and he knew that he was not exempt from blame. Notice that he prays, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, we have acted very wickedly. We have not obeyed. This is just remarkable to me. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to look back and blame his ancestors, but instead he looked within himself and blamed himself. It's so easy for us to blame others, isn't it? We need to learn from Nehemiah and confess honestly, Lord, I am wrong. I not only want to be a part of the answer, I confess that I'm part of the problem. And lastly, urgency. Nehemiah recognized that sin is not merely a stubborn refusal to obey certain rules, but is also a defiant act of aggressive personal rebellion against a holy God. He knows that they've acted very wickedly. He didn't try to candy coat his sin. He owned it and called it what it was. The story is told about some Boeing aircraft employees in Washington State who decided to steal a life raft from one of the 747s they were working on. They were successful in getting it out of the plant, but they forgot one thing. The raft comes with an emergency locator that is automatically activated when the raft is inflated. So when they took the raft out on the Stillaquamish River, they were quite surprised by a Coast Guard helicopter homing in on that emergency locator beacon. Trying to hide our sins from God is impossible. He knows all about them. Numbers 32:23 reminds us that, but if you fail to keep your word, then you will all have sinned against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Friends, we need to recognize that all sin, those things we have blatantly done or carelessly committed, or those things that we've left undone, must be identified and then confessed. Are you trying to hide anything today? It's better to confess it now than to wait until your sin exposes you. The next step in Nehemiah's process of prayer is having confidence in God's promises. While Nehemiah spends time in broken confession, he doesn't wallow in a prolonged introspective examination of his failures and those of his brothers and sisters. He owns what he did wrong, and then he quickly expresses confidence in God's promises. Verses 8 through 10 say, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. In this part of his prayer, Nehemiah recalls the words of Moses about the dangers of Israel's apostasy and the promise of divine mercy. His words are a skillful mosaic of great Old Testament warnings and promises, with quotes coming from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Psalm 130. What was the promise Nehemiah was getting at? It was twofold. First, if Israel disobeyed, they would be sent to a foreign land. That had been fulfilled. The second part was that when the captivity was over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. They were still waiting for that to be fulfilled. Nehemiah prayed, Lord, the first part's true. We've disobeyed and we're in captivity. But Lord, you made a promise to bring us back home and protect us there. That hasn't happened yet. I'm claiming your promise, God, that you'll make it happen. 
Someone has calculated that there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. The better we know the Word of God, the better we'll be able to pray with confidence in God's promises. 1 John 5.14 says, And we are confident that He hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases Him. Beloved, are you as confident of God's promises as Nehemiah was? If God said it in His Word, you can believe it. Nehemiah knew God would keep His covenant of love with His people. Do you see the progression in Nehemiah's prayer so far? His concern about the problem led him to brokenness. While he was weeping and fasting, he expressed his conviction about God's character. As he focused on the greatness and awesomeness of his holy God, he was quickly reminded of his own sinfulness and therefore cried out in confession. After owning his role in the nation's depravity, he prayed boldly and with confidence in God's promises. This then leads him to the last step of his prayer process, which is a commitment to get involved. We see this in verse 11, which says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. It has been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but getting God's will done on earth. However, for God's will to be done on earth, he needs people to be available for him to use. While Nehemiah was praying, his burden for Jerusalem became greater and his vision for what needed to be done became clearer. He didn't pray for God to send someone else. He simply said, here am I, send me. He knew he was going to have to approach the king and request a three-year leave of absence. And so he asked God for success, which means to break out or push forward. He wanted to see God break out on his behalf when he goes in front of the king to make his request. He was claiming yet another promise from Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. Someone has said that the key word in this book is the word so, which occurs actually 32 different times. Again and again, Nehemiah assesses the situation, is moved to concern, and so is compelled to action. The true measure of our concern is whether or not we're willing to make a commitment to get involved. Martin Luther once said, Pray as if everything depends on God, then work as if everything depends on you. Just the other day, I came across a story about a college choir which was all set to perform at a concert in a large church, and it was to be carried live by a local radio station. When everything appeared to be ready, the announcer made his final introduction and waited for the choir director to begin. But a tenor wasn't ready, so the director refused to raise his baton. At this time, nothing but silence was being broadcast. Growing very nervous, the announcer, forgetting that his microphone was still on and that he could be heard in the church and on air, said in exasperation, Get on with it, you old goat! Later in the week, the radio station got a letter from one of its listeners, a man who had tuned in to listen to the music from the comfort of his easy chair. When he heard, get on with it, you old goat, he took the message personally. He had been doing nothing to further God's work, but this startling message was enough to convict him and get him going again. Sometimes we need a wake-up call, don't we? Maybe you've received that call today and God is saying to you, get on with it, you old goat, or young goat as the case may be. Where are you in this prayer process right now, my friends? Are you concerned about your problems? Do you have a conviction about God's holy character? Are you ready to confess your sins? Do you have confidence in God's promises? Are you ready to make a commitment to get involved in God's kingdom work? Then come on, let go and let God right here, right now. 
Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.